Hello, Tim Williams here. I'm the creator and host of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. Thanks for choosing to listen to one of our archived episodes from our early days of launching the show. Although I love the overall content of these episodes, I will say the recording quality was not always the best as the show was still evolving and I was learning to record and edit pretty much on the fly. I believe the sound quality and editing has improved from season to season, so be sure to check out more great episodes in our more recent seasons. I hope you enjoy this episode and that it rekindles all those warm and fuzzy nostalgic feels. Once again, thank you so much for listening. Hello movie viewers and movie lovers, my name is Tim Williams and I'm your host for the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast, where we talk about all the great and sometimes not so great movies from the 1980s. From blockbusters to cult classics to lesser known treasures we discovered on cable TV or the now defunct video rental stores from our childhood. No matter what flick we choose from week to week, we'll have a lot of fun sharing memories, discussing our favorite scenes and even learning some behind-the-scenes stories about the cast and crew along the way. So let's jump right into today's episode. Thanks for listening. John McTiernan's 1988 action tour de force is often called one of the greatest action films ever made. It's a masterclass on every level, building entertaining characters, crafting escalating action, establishing and navigating geography, and putting an empathetic hero through the ringer in the face of extraordinary odds. McTiernan and his collaborators made this all look easy, but as the rash of Hollywood imitators that followed quickly proved, it was anything but. So come on out to the coast, we'll have a few laughs as Laramie Wells and I take off our shoes and make fists with our toes as we discuss Die Hard for this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback. So, this is going to be a good one. Welcome once again, uh, one of my guest co-hosts, one of the favorites here on the podcast, Mr. Laramie Wells from Moving Panels Podcast. How you doing, Laramie? I am good. You missed the opportunity to say welcome to the party, pal. Oh, doggone it. I sure did. <laughs> well, you well, you just did, so I guess it all works out. So, yeah, I, I don't know how many... Uh, 
how many lines we can uh, we can reference in this episode, but there's plenty. Uh, we'll do better with this one than planes, trains, and automobiles, I think. <laughs> yeah. Although we, we have to tread a very thin line with this one. Yes, yes. This is still a family-friendly podcast, so we'll keep it uh, family-friendly. So we'll leave it at yippee-ki-yay and just leave it at that. So, All right, so you know the drill. When did you see Die Hard for the first time? Oh, um, you know, again, it kind of has become my trope. Uh, you saw it on TV. I saw, yes, I'm sure I saw it on TV exactly when, I couldn't tell you. Um, but, uh, you know, and also I've seen this movie hundreds, if yeah. not thousands of times, so right. there's no telling when it was my first <laughs> You can do you think? Can you think about what age range you might have been when you saw? Were you still a, a kid or a teenager? I was probably a teenager. I was probably in high school. Okay. Uh, when I saw it, um, I'm. I would doubt, to be honest, I would doubt it piqued my interest uh, when I was younger. Right. So it probably wasn't until I was a teenager that it it piqued my interest enough to stop and watch it. Gotcha. All right, so we'll kind of want to deviate a little bit from the from the norm just to kind of dig just to dig a little deeper. So, how did you hear about Die Hard? Was it someone recommended it to you? Did it come on TV and you just like how did you discover it? Ooh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, honestly, like like probably most um, movies, especially movies from the eighties, it was probably just from catching it on television. Gotcha. Just uh, you know flipping through the channels or seeing a promo of, you know, coming up and uh, this Saturday on TBS or whatever. <laughs> uh, it probably just was, was pure television because I honestly didn't have an awful lot of friends and definitely didn't have uh, family members who were always about, you know, hey, you got to see this. I was the big movie buff. <laughs> oh, gotcha, gotcha. So. Okay. But I was a I was, I've been a huge Bruce Willis fan since Moonlighting. Right. I remember watching Moonlighting as a kid. I think right. my parents watched it. Okay. And so, you know, there was that pull to it. And I I love Bruce Willis. I love this movie. <laughs> I'm going to try not to rant uh, too much. <laughs> try not to gush too much, okay? Try yes. To... <laughs> All right, so when was the last time you watched it before this podcast? And then thousands of times you've watched it. Uh probably last christmas yeah yeah i don't think i've watched it i mean this year has been a crazy year i don't think i've watched it this year <laughs> gotcha up until up for, until you know uh, watching it again for this podcast which as i'm watching it, i'm going i didn't need to watch this <laughs> yeah i kind of said the same thing so uh let's see i i'm pretty sure i saw this in the theater i mean i like i said i was I was going to a lot of movies as a kid. We were a movie family, so and I'm, I know I saw this one with my dad because we were the action movie. Like if it was an action movie, we were going to see it, whether it was a Sylvester Stallone action movie or Schwarzenegger. Um, but I remember, I remember seeing an ad in the paper for this one, and like, oh, this is gonna, you know, just it looked, it enticed me. I don't remember the, the seeing the trailers as much as like, like the picture of the building and you know. It's the, the the so someone on the tagline about it, it's going to blow you out of the back of the theater, you know, and so yeah. uh, so I remember going to see it and just kind of being blown away. But I remember more when it was on video, like a couple years later, and like all my friends 
we would, you know, we'd be able to find it at the video rental store, like on a Saturday, we just all gather around the TV and just watch it. Um, and so I, I know I saw it on video several times. And of course, I've seen the TV version uh, with all its uh, interesting um, variations of dialogue. <laughs> yeah. what, so. What's funny is you talk about seeing the newspaper ad, this movie poster, which I actually have hanging up uh, here in my house, I, okay. I have a diehard movie poster. Um, this movie poster is one of the rare movie posters that I've seen that pretty much has a synopsis of the movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. On the movie poster. <laughs> it says, high above the city of L.A., a team of terrorists has seized a building, building, taken hostages, and declared war. One man has managed to escape, an off-duty cop hiding somewhere inside. He's alone, tired, and the only chance anybody has got. They give an entire synopsis <laughs> of the movie. On the movie poster. Right. That sounds like the voiceover from the trailer, pretty much yeah. word for word. So, yeah. All right. Well, yeah, well, let's just let's just jump right in. So pre-production, develop. Oh, so when the last time I watched it for the podcast, I mean, not, I'm jumping too far ahead. So I know I saw it several times, uh, like I said, and I was probably 10, 11, like preteen. Uh, I think, no, let's see, 88. I would have been middle school. Just about probably like sixth or seventh grade. So, um, and then I watched, I did watch this one last year because, you know, over the last couple of years, it, the whole big debate about whether Die Hard is, is it or is it not a Christmas movie? And, uh, so we, we both agreed that it is. And so I was like, last year I said, I want to, I want to take a break from watching my standard Christmas movies like Scrooged and Elf and, uh, Christmas Vacation, uh, Christmas with the Cranks. It's a Wonderful Life. All those that I want to go and watch what what people would consider obscure Christmas movies. So I watched this one. I watched Lethal Weapon. I watched Gremlins. So uh, okay, I, I, we don't want to spend a lot of time with this. Christmas <laughs> with the Cranks is one of your go to Christmas movies. It is. That is my wife and I. We we very much enjoy Christmas with the Cranks. I know it is like panned by critics and audiences alike, but for some reason, it just. It it it's very funny to us. So we have our reasons. Nope. <laughs> uh, well, we're not going to talk about that on this podcast. Talk about eighties movies. <laughs> talk about eighties movies. So, all right. So let's talk about the pre production quickly before we talk more about Christmas with the Cranks. So uh, I know Laramie knows all this stuff, but and he feel free to to interrupt if I miss something or or skip something. So. But let's jump right in. So development for the actual movie Die Hard began in 1987. Screenwriter Jeb Stewart was in dire financial straits and needed paying work. 20th Century Fox offered offered him an opportunity to write an adaptation of the 1978 novel Nothing Lasts Forever, written by former police officer Roderick Thorpe. Having purchased the adaptation rights to the novel before it had ever been written, Fox had adapted the book's 1966 predecessor, the detective for the 1968 film of the same name starring old blue eyes himself, Frank Sinatra as NYPD detective Joe Leland. The detective had been considered groundbreaking for its time, showing a more realistic take on police work than other Hollywood fare. Thorpe was inspired to write nothing last forever following a dream he had after watching the disaster film, the towering inferno in 1974. So Lloyd Levin, who was the head of development at the Gordon Company, a producing arm of 20th Century Fox, had attempted to develop the film for several years and offered Stewart the opportunity to do so. 
He gave Stewart creative freedom as long as he retained the Christmas in Los Angeles setting. He even had a crazy idea that it would be snowing in Los Angeles in, in the film. So, uh, Lawrence Gordon and Joel Silver served as producers, and they hired director John McTiernan due to his work with them on the successful 1987 action film Predator, which Laramie and I discussed several episodes before. Before joining, McTiernan turned down the offer multiple times because he didn't agree with the film's tone. He said, quote-unquote, My principal concern going into this was that it was a story that concerned terrorists, and terrorist movies are usually mean, filled with all sorts of mean, nasty acts. And I didn't say yes to this project until we figured out how some way to put in, uh, put in essence, some joy into it. So Stuart began working... The book has none. The book has none? Yeah. No, the book is, is dark and gloomy and gritty and... Uh... And, but we'll get into that a little bit more yeah, later. Yeah. Uh, so we, we we talked about before the podcast started. So Laramie has actually read the book, and so we're gonna we're gonna discuss uh, some of the differences as well. So uh, so Stewart began working eighteen hour days, traveling from his home in Pasadena, California, to his office at Walt Disney Studios in Burbank, California, uh, returning home only briefly to put his children to bed. Uh, he had became exhausted, which left him feeling on edge, and the situation led to an argument with his wife one night. He decided to go for a drive and came upon what he thought was a refrigerator in a box in the middle of the road that he was unable to miss hitting. It turned out to be empty, but the encounter had triggered a near-death experience for him. He realized at that moment he needed to reconcile with his wife, which in turn sparked a new motivation for his main character in Die Hard. He had struggled to find a narrative core that could capture the audience's attention, but after his accident, he realized that it should be about a stubborn man trying to reconcile with his wife. Stewart used the marital strife and collapse experiences of his peers to shape McLean's marriage and ended up writing 35 pages that night. So, pretty true to what you know so far? Yeah. I'm trying to trying to keep it brief. So, uh, I did think this was interesting. The character of John McLean was initially named John Ford, but 20th Century Fox felt this disrespected the deceased director of the same name. Stuart chose McLean as a good, strong Scottish name, he said, based on his own Celtic heritage. He described the character as a flawed hero who learns a lesson in the worst possible situation and by the end becomes a better person, but ultimately not a different person. Having no experience writing action films, Stuart drew on his own experience writing thrillers with a focus on making the audience care about McLean, Holly, his wife, and their reconciliation. So he said uh, he actually credits Levin as instrumental in helping him to better understand the novel Nothing Lasts Forever, which was not an easy novel to adapt for the screen. Many sequences from the novel were faithfully adapted by the film, including a C4 charge being thrown down an elevator shaft and the central character in that in the book, Joe Leland, leaping from the roof. However, the novel is told entirely from Leland's perspective, events he is not present for are not detailed. Its tone is also more cynical and nihilistic. Leland visits his drug addict daughter at the Klaxon building, and she dies having fallen from the building alongside villain Anton Gruber. Gruber is a terrorist using naive young male and female guerrilla soldiers to rob the building because of Klaxon's support for a dictatorial government. This made their motivations less clear and Leland more conflicted about killing them, especially the women. Leland is, Leland is written as an experienced older man working as a high-powered security consultant. Pretty true so far? Yeah. <laughs> so, 
Stewart created new material for scenes when McLean is not present. This allowed him to expand upon or introduce characters. Powell is given a wife and children, allowing him to relate more closely to McLean. Argyle, whose novel counterpart disappears early in the story, is present throughout the script, supporting McLean by broadcasting rap music over the terrorist radios. Among the script's original characters is the unscrupulous journalist Richard Thornburg, a fan of prominent Western film actor John Wayne. Stewart was inspired to carry a Western theme throughout the script, including cowboy lingo. So, you seem you seem confused. Well, there was the line about Argyle... Using rap music? Uh, yeah, but putting it through the radio. He never puts it through the radio. Okay. Is that... and, also, and also saying that he has a counterpart in the movie. No, I mean, in the book. Okay. No, he doesn't. There is a an, there is an African American man mm-hmm. who is the taxi driver. Okay, who takes John to the the Claxon Oil building mm-hmm. and then leaves. Like there is no counterpart. Argyle <laughs> is completely a unique character. Gotcha. Okay, so that's what I really saw as far as the differences. So what else that you can remember? Because then you said it's been a while since you read the book, so. Anything else stand out? Well, I mean, you, you hit a lot. Of, there's a lot of <laughs> scenes that are uh, directly from the book. Okay. Uh, you know, not just the tying the hose and jumping off the side of the building, but even throwing a body out of the building to get okay. the attention of the cops. Gotcha. He does, Joe does that in the book. Um, the, uh, the taping the gun to his back. Okay. That's... That's actually what Joe does at the end. Uh, Carl coming, you know, out for his final. Okay. You know, you, you think that Carl's gonna shoot some people, and then right. Al shooting Carl. Mm-hmm. Al shoots Carl in both the book and the movie. Okay. Um, the even though there's a slight difference, even the infamous uh, "Now I Have a Machine Gun." Okay. Ho ho ho. Written on. Yeah. yeah, in the in the novel, Joe actually writes. Now we have a machine. Oh, okay, gun. okay. Because he's he's confusing them, thinking that there's a group of people, uh, and it's not just him all by himself. Okay, which would have uh, been a smart move. Yeah. So there, there's, you know, there's a lot of, uh-huh. of scenes that I know are uh, the whole him being barefoot is in the book, um, even. Even some of the details, like him uh, rubbing his feet in the carpet, gotcha. Because he heard he heard about that uh, helping with jet lag. Now they do play on the jet lag a little bit more in, okay. the, book in the book because Joe is older. Mm-hmm. Um, it's his daughter is Stephanie Janeiro, uh, not Holly Janeiro. Okay, and it's his daughter, so he is older. He's retired. Um. And so they do play a lot more with him just being fatigued, okay, and and all that. But um, but yeah, I, again, we're going to get into a whole bunch of stuff. But <laughs> uh, and uh, little little characters, Dwayne Robinson, the yeah, the, the chief captain, yeah, the that chief. shows up. It's dead on the exact same character, really. Okay, from the book. Yeah, the only difference is at the end of the book. When Carl, uh, you know, busts out and starts mm. shoot randomly shooting, okay, he actually kills Captain Robinson. Wow. Okay. Which, of course, they don't do in the movie, right? Um, 
So, you know, there, there, there's a lot I could keep going. Um, <laughs> but but we, we can move on. Okay. Well, what about the, like, so, what well, are those things that are the same? Was there anything in the book that is different that you wish they would have left in the movie? Was there anything that you think they got the best of the book and put in the, in the film or is there anything in the book in the book you're like, man, if they would have left that scene, it might've been, you know, not that it was lacking anything really, but I don't know. Yeah, not really. Uh, cause there's a lot that it worked in the book. Um, in the book, for instance, Stephanie Gennaro mm-hmm. is not a nice person. Okay. Whereas in the movie, they make her, you know, very strong, independent, mm-hmm. you know, uh, woman in the book she's she's uh, she's a drug addict mm-hmm. um, she is actually involved in the Claxon oil company which is the replacement of Nakatomi right um, in the book they're they're into some shady deals which is what Gruber Anton Gruber mm-hmm. is is trying to uh, feed upon is the shady deals that they're, they're going in. And so she's not a nice person. So at the end of the book, when Hans is, you know, hanging, he grabs Stephanie and Joe is not there. Like John is in the movie. Mm. And so Stephanie falls out the window, uh, and, and dies. Right. Uh, so pretty much you're, you're looking at Joe, Joe, you know, saves all of these people, but the one person he's not able to save is his daughter. Right, right. Uh, and of course, that's not going to work in this movie. Right. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. The the whole Gruber, uh, you know, Anton versus Hans uh, in the book, because like you said, it's all from Joe's point of view. You don't get a lot of who Gruber is or right. what Gruber is. Once you do, you get a. There's a lot of like flashbacks in okay. the book. Okay. Of Joe like reliving his time in World War Two. Oh wow! Okay, and and you know his past moments on the Force, and then we do get a little bit of of backstory on on Gruber, but he's kind of a flat character. He's just pure evil in gotcha. the the book. Mm-hmm. Whereas, I mean, Alan Rickman, this is he's <laughs> he makes one of the best movie villains. Yeah. Oh, definitely, that. definitely. Because he not only is evil, he is evil, don't get me wrong, <laughs> but he brings like a charm to it. Right, right, right. And that just works so much better. I mean, Al is pretty much the same character. There is some of it. They, The book doesn't introduce Al until much later okay. into the book. Gotcha. It is actually, uh, Joe is actually talking to the flight attendant. Right on the walkie-talkie. Yeah, I, I read a little. I think there was other stuff I didn't put put in the uh, notes. But yeah, it wasn't like the flight attendant, like a love interest for him in the book. Yeah, very loose okay. love interest. Um, but yeah, they they make a nod to it in the movie at the opening where the flight attendant kind of flirts with him, winks yeah. at at John. Yeah, and there's an extended and, scene that's in the special features of that where it's a little bit more implied than what you see in the final cut. But yeah, go ahead. No, and that's it. And so they, she gives Joe his number or her number. And, uh, he, he later when he needs to reach out to somebody, Mm -hmm. that's the only number he has on him. Okay. Gotcha. And so he reaches out to her. And so a lot of the 
where Joe was kind of talking to Al as in a way where it was like, I need someone to talk to. Gotcha. It was the, the flight, the flight attendant in the, in the novel. Um, Oh, another quick, again, I know you asked me, is there stuff in the book that they should have put in the movie? Mm -hmm. My answer to that is no, (laughs) but, but stuff in the book that I'm glad they didn't. Okay. Yeah. That's a, that's a good Uh, one. Another was that Stephanie, his daughter, Mm -hmm. was having an affair with Ellis. Oh, yeah, don't do that. Yeah, yeah. And and Ellis is the same in both the book and the movie. Gotcha, gotcha. He's a horrible guy, you know, the whole cocaine. Hans, booby, I'm your white knight. I can give him to you. (laughs) But yeah, they're they're having an affair in in the novel. And just, but no, the whole aspect of it being an estranged wife uh, and bringing kind of that relationship in just mm-hmm. makes it work better. Yeah, uh, having having Al be kind of his his uh, sidekick even from outside the building for the majority of the movie that works better. Hans, of course, is so much better. Um, so, but was- I ain't gonna lie. I ain't gonna lie. I would have. I would have probably been just as interested in watching Frank Sinatra play this role. <laughs> yeah, that'd be cool. It'll be it definitely a different take, uh, you know, since he was like close to seventy at that point. So, um, but I was going to ask. So, as far as Carl in the book, is Carl is Carl as vengeful, like trying to seek revenge on Leland as much as he's trying to seek revenge on McLean for killing his brother? Yes. Like, was that the same? Yes. Because okay. that even happens the same way. Okay. Uh, it's the first person that Joe kills. It is kind of... I don't remember if it's exactly the way it is in the movie, but I do know that it, it is uh, kind of as they're struggling. Uh, Carl's brother gets his neck broken. Okay. Because um, one thing they deal with in the novel is Joe, and you kind of hit on it a little bit, is Joe, he doesn't want to kill right and again since it is from his point of view and he's kind of narrating as it goes he struggles with the fact that with each kill he the feeling he gets about how much easier it becomes for him Mm -hmm. which another thing that you know you mentioned it that's in the book not in the movie is that some of the terrorists in the book are actually females Right, right. And I, I just don't think it would have worked to have, you know, Bruce Willis going around <laughs> killing women. Right, right. So I think I saw something in the book. He's like, he's really hurt at the end of the end of the book, where something like that. Yeah, in the in the novel, like I mentioned earlier, they they play a little bit more with him being older, being old, right, and that he does all this stuff. I mm-hmm. mean, he does the jumps off the 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 roof with the fire hose uh he you know climbing down the elevator uh shaft the elevator shaft with you know just hanging on with the uh, strap of the gun gotcha um i'm pretty sure he even crossed to the air vents you know like it's the infamous scene mm-hmm. with john mcclain so he's doing all of that and they really play with the the darkness of it that you almost question, is he going to survive the night? Gotcha, gotcha. Whereas we don't really get that with Bruce Willis's John McClane. 
Right. You know, we're not worried that he's going to die. Yeah. Uh, they try to they try to give a little bit of it when he gives that speech to Al when he's pulling know, the glass tell, from his feet. Yeah. Yeah. Tell my kids and my, my wife mm-hmm. that you know I realize what I should have done. You know all that stuff that he says. That's the closest they get. But I mean, the book ends with Carl, you know, breaking out, mm-hmm. firing into the crowd, and Joe hits the pavement. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course. Al then shoots and kills Carl, and that's that's the end of the book. <laughs> wow! Like there is no like get up and mm-hmm. oh way to go, pal. You know right. thanks and, and no, it's Joe is on the ground. Gotcha. It's collapsed from all that he's gone through. Wow. Okay. Well, well, we may bring some other stuff up as we as we you know dive a little deeper, but I think that's a good uh, a good bit of uh gets perspective of the book and how it differed but i mean you know once again just from what the research we saw and then i do want to reference there's a great if you have netflix there's a uh like a docu-series that came out i think it was last year early last year called the movies that made us and one of their episodes is on die hard and they do a great job of you know covering a lot of this stuff in more detail and so it's very entertaining My name is Laramie Wells, and I host a podcast called Moving Panels. On Moving Panels, we discuss movies and television shows based on, inspired by, and adapted from the world of comic books. Join me and a wide range of guest hosts as we discuss the hits like Logan and The Dark Knight, as well as clear misses like X-Men Origins Wolverine and Green Lantern. New episodes drop every other Friday, and you can find us wherever you download your podcasts. So join us for Moving Panels, and we'll see you on the other side of the page. Uh, you know, Stewart was writing this uh, screenplay, and he'd been doing multiple rewrites. So, just as filming was about to begin, Stewart was actually fired, and a new screenwriter, Stephen E. D'Souza, was brought on to rewrite Stewart's script, as he had prior experience in blending action and comedy. He approached the story, he said, from the view that Gruber is the protagonist. He said, if Hans had not planned the robbery and put it together. McLean would have gone to the party and reconciled or not with his wife. He said, you should sometimes think about looking at your movie through the point of view of the villain and who is really driving the narrative. D'Souza used blueprints of Fox Plaza where the film was being shot to help him lay out the story and character locations within the building. So what do you think about that, about the perspective of Hans being the protagonist? I, I don't I don't agree with it. Um, <laughs> yeah, D'Souza's because... a pretty interesting guy too, so... Yeah, because if if Hans had not shown up, then okay, yeah, sure, John and Holly would have either reconciled, which it looked like they were on the verge of doing, right, right, um, or not. But it would have happened in more of a natural progression. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, they... whereas this almost makes them, you know, where at the end when they're uh, together, it almost makes it like it's. It's forced them back together, which, right. you know, ultimately when you follow the Die Hard movies, you know, mm-hmm. by Die Hard with a vengeance, they're divorced. Right. So the script continued to undergo changes up to and during filming. Several subplots and character beats were created because during early filming, Willis was still working simultaneously on Moonlighting. He would film the show for up to 10 hours and then work on Die Hard at night. 
As the situation was expected to continue for at least a week or longer, McTiernan opted to give Willis some time off so he could rest, and he asked D'Souza about adding new scenes they could film in the interim. These included scenes with Holly's housekeeper, an introductory scene for Thornburg, and more moments between Powell and his fellow officers. The scene where Holly confronts Goober, <laughs> Goober, when Holly confronts Gruber in the wake of Takagi's death was also added during this time. So, That's a good scene. Yeah, it is a good scene. Silver wanted a scene between McLean and Gruber before the film's climactic ending, but D'Souza couldn't think of an idea that would allow the pair to meet without one killing the other. Between takes, D'Souza heard Rickman attempting an American accent with a crew member. He realized that an accent would let Gruber disguise himself when he met McLean. McTiernan didn't like the idea as McLean would see Gruber's face while observing him murder Takagi, but that scene had not yet been filmed and it was reworked to conceal Gruber's identity from McLean. In Stewart's original script, Die Hard took place over three days. McTiernan was inspired to have it take place over a single night by Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. He did not want to use terrorists as the villains, as we mentioned before, as he considered them to be too mean. McTiernan avoided focusing on the terrorist politics in favor of making them thieves driven by monetary pursuits. He felt this would make it more suitable summer entertainment. McLean's character was actually not fully realized until almost halfway through the production. McTiernan and Willis had determined that McLean was a man who does not like himself much, but is doing the best he can in a bad situation. So I think that's a pretty good summary of that. So, But yeah, uh, on the on the docuseries, they talk a lot about how uh, he was writing, uh, D'Souza was doing a lot of the writing, like they were getting so many rewrites uh, as they were filming. And actually the computer room with, uh, uh, what's his name, uh, trying to break the codes on the computer. They said when they built, yeah, yeah when they built the computer room, nobody on, on the, nobody in the cast or the crew even knew what it was for. Like he had, he hadn't come up with the idea of, what the actual plan was when the line, the line is whatever happens, we stick to the plan. They said when they filmed that scene, they really didn't even know what the plan was, uh, for the end of the movie. So, but McTiernan seems to work well that way. I think it was kind of like that way in predator a little bit too, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause, uh, yeah. Cause there's a, there's a lot where it's like, you can tell there was all of a sudden a hard left turn, <laughs> uh, and Predator. I think this one's a little bit more cohesive. Yeah. Um, I think he learned a lot. From, he learned a lot from Predator. I'm sure he was able to avoid some of the same mistakes in doing this one. So. Yeah, because we don't have. I mean, other than maybe you could argue the the pregnant woman mm-hmm. at the party who kind of is a character but isn't a character. Right. Right. And the only reason she had to be pregnant was so that Holly could say they needed a couch. <laughs> right. Um, and for her to you be, know, yeah, for her to be next to her for like some, for her to have some dialogue once Ellis was dead. Yeah. So other than her just being kind of really random, um, you know, you don't have that, you know, because like you know, again, go back and listen to the Predator episode, but we talked about the female character that's with all of them in Predator. Like right. she serves no purpose. Right. Right. Yeah, because they could have. She gives like one little bit of exposition. And really after that, she's not needed at all. So, uh, but yeah, I was going to say like for this one, um, like there's even a scene that they talk about um, where you see the moving truck that comes at the beginning of the movie. And there's a shot of all of the terrorists coming out of the, out of the truck. And it looks like the truck is empty. Like it only just brought them in, 
But then at the end of the movie, you see a fake ambulance coming out. McTiernan yeah. saw this in an early in an early cut, and he was like, by this point in the movie, nobody's going to remember that scene at the beginning, so he left it in. Uh, and I've seen the movie, I can't even tell you how many times, and even when yeah. I watched it yes, you know, yesterday, when they came out of the truck, I was thinking, where's the ambulance at that's going to come back later in two, in the two hours? You're, you're not thinking about that in watching this movie, so. Well, that's just like also at the beginning, you want to just talk about a really random thing. Yeah. When, when John comes into Nakatomi Plaza. Yes, yes. And there's the desk clerk, and he's he's like, I'm here for Holly McLean. Right. And the desk clerk tells him to type it into the screen, and they do the whole thing with the screen. And I'm like, right. okay, that is clearly just to make it look like it's high tech. Exactly. And maybe because he then types it in. They also do the reveal that it's Gennaro, right. which if you want to get into the fact that they spell her name differently like five times in the movie. <laughs> um, but I didn't notice that. Gennaro, so. And then he finds out she's on the 30th floor from this little computer. Right. And he goes, 30th floor. And the desk clerk then goes, Christmas party. They're the only ones in the building. <laughs> then why didn't you just tell him she's on the 30th floor to begin with? Yeah, exactly. Why did he have to type her name in? Right, right. Exactly. So, but it's still a perfect movie with that. <laughs> you know, so, I'll still watch it over and over again. It doesn't matter. Yeah. But yeah, I had that, one. I had that in my notes as well. So. It's the way for them to reveal that she's going by the name Gennaro right, right. and not McClane. And it's that that's really the only purpose of that. Yeah. But really, he could have realized that later when he goes into her office and sees her name on the door. I mean, they could have done that other ways, but but I agree with you. I think it was more about showing that it was a quote unquote high tech building. Because mm-hmm. I mean, I remember when that came out, you know, as once again as a kid, you know, seeing it, you know, in eighty eight. That was like the coolest thing. It was like, oh my gosh, you can, you know, instead of seeing a director in a wall with like names on tile, you could actually like press a button and it would, you no, know. Not, not a button. It's a touch screen. T- touch screen, right. That, you know, that's that seems so low tech to us now. But, you know, in 1988, that was like, we're living in Star Trek. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. so. All right. Well, let's jump into casting. Uh We've we've kind of mentioned some some of these already, and uh, and some of this you know I'll try not to uh, rehash too much. So, as we mentioned, though the main character names differed because Die Hard was based on the novel, the studio was contractually obligated to offer Frank Sinatra the role. Sinatra, who was seventy at the time, declined. The role was then offered to stars including Schwarzenegger, as we said, Stallone, Richard Gere, Clint Eastwood, Burt Reynolds, and James Caan, just to name a few. The prevailing action archetype of the era was a muscle-bound, invincible, macho man like Schwarzenegger, an established star who had helped make McTiernan's Predator a success. Schwarzenegger wanted to move away from action films and into comedy and actually turned down this role to star in the 1988 comedy Twins. Not a smart move. But anyway, uh, but I also read also read that uh, they actually tried to, pr- to bring this script to him in its early stages as a Commando 2 sequel. Which I didn't know that until no. today. <laughs> no. Yeah. Uh, again, that's the thing. That's the thing about this. I know you're getting into the casting of Bruce Willis. Right. But the fact that he is, even though he is a cop. Yeah. But the fact that he is just the everyman. Yeah. Like, that is what made Exactly. This. If oh, you yeah. had seen... 
if you had seen Arnold Schwarzenegger, especially in nineteen eighties, Arnold Schwarzenegger, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you would have just went, okay, yeah, he's gonna, yeah, he's gonna, you know, kill everybody. Um, yeah, and I'm, yeah, and and of course, I would have, <laughs> I would have loved to seen how the fitting through the the air conditioner vent <laughs> would have worked. Right, right. Yeah, and it's like uh, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a sort of a detour, but we're talking about this and you know movies that were inspired by this. We'll talk about later, but you know, uh, Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, made a movie a couple years ago called Skyscraper, which a lot of people said was like it was a combination of Die Hard and Towering Inferno. But as soon as you see Dwayne The Rock Johnson on screen, you never doubt that he's not gonna make it to the end of the movie. And of course, it's more comical because you know he in that movie he runs. He jumps from one building to the other, and I'm like, dude, you're way like, you're almost 300 pounds total mass muscle. There's no way you're going to be able to jump, you know, 10 feet across. So, uh, you know, I think let alone the actual physics involved yeah, in that. Yeah, exactly. So, so yes, I agree with you. It the what they what was the norm for an action movie at that point, whether they were trying to do that or not. Casting Bruce Willis totally changed how action movies were seen because seeing someone like Bruce Willis in that role, you were like, how is he going to do this? Because he's not what we would consider a quote unquote, an action star or the muscle bound, you know, super macho guy. So, but all right. So Willis was, as you said, was mainly known mainly for his comedic role as detective David Addison in the romantic comedy television series, Moonlighting starring alongside Sybil Shepard. Though he was not the producer's first choice, he declined the role because of his contractual obligations to Moonlighting. But Sybil Shepard became pregnant, and the show's production was shut down for 11 weeks, giving Willis enough time to take the role. The choice was controversial because Willis had only starred in one other film, the moderately successful comedy Blind Date in 1987, which I have seen, and I did see in the theater. Uh... There was also a clear distinction between film and television actors at that time, and though films like Ghostbusters had demonstrated that television stars could lead a blockbuster film, other TV actors like Shelley Long and Bill Cosby had failed in their recent attempts to make the transition from the small to the big screen. The other big thing was Willis received $5 million for the role, a figure virtually unheard of for major movie stars at the time. This defied the Hollywood hierarchy by giving Willis a comparable salary to more successful actors like Dustin Hoffman, Warren Beatty, and Robert Redford at the time. Well, we all know Bruce Willis was the perfect choice for this, so I'm not even digging any more into that. So, but let's, oh, yeah. but let's move on to Alan Rickman. Uh, he was 41 when he made his screen debut as Hans Gruber. He was actually cast by uh, McTiernan and Silver, who had seen him perform in a Broadway version of Dangerous Liaison, playing the villain. He nearly passed up the role of Gruber. Uh, with, uh, he had only arrived in Hollywood two days earlier and was appalled by the idea of his first role being the villain in an action film. To a degree, Rickman was right to be concern, concerned, considering his performance as Hans Gruber was so hailed that the actor had to struggle being typecast as a player of villains for much of his career. So, Because, yeah, he pretty much went from this one to... Uh, Sheriff of Nottingham and uh, mm-hmm. Prince of Thieves. Prince of Thieves. Yeah, which he was great yeah. in that too. But he, it was much more campy in uh, Robin Hood than in this. So, yeah, but a decade later, and he would be uh, he would, uh, oh name slip of mine. Uh, 
Alexander Dane in uh, Galaxy Quest. Yes, yes. So, but she was crazy though to think that Alan Rickman, you know, Snape. I yeah, mean, yeah. To think that this was his first movie. Yeah, yeah. That's just crazy. <laughs> but I will say this: even from first seeing him on the screen. You knew, I mean, you kind of, I mean, as I said, as like a 12-year-old kid, but you knew he was going to be a big star. I mean, he was so magnetic on screen, even, you know, even outside of that character. And then you've seen that over his career, um, the different types of characters that he eventually got to play. You saw his range. Um, but yeah, Galaxy Quest is still one of my favorite movies, uh, especially with him in it. I mean, that, that just, once again, showed his range uh, in that movie. Um, and a Snape and the uh, the ele- the evolution of Snape in the Harry Potter movies. So, uh, so Bonnie Bedelia was cast as at Willis's suggestion. He had seen her in the Golden Globe Award nominated performance of the nineteen eighty three biographical film Heart Like a Wheel. Um, any thoughts on Bonnie Bedelia? No, I, I think she, you know she works as Holly. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's kind of at least on my level of movies, you know, she didn't really, this is really the only thing yeah. I know her from. Yeah. yeah exactly. Die Hard and Die Hard 2. Right. And I think I've, I've seen bits and pieces of Heart Like a Wheel, I mean, much later. And so, uh, but yeah, I haven't really seen her much of anything else. Reginald Vell Johnson also appeared in his first major film role. He was cast at the suggestion of casting director Jackie Birch, with whom he had worked previously. Uh, it's said that Robert Duvall, Gene Hackman, and Lawrence Fishburne were also considered for the role of Powell. So, but I think Bill Johnson was once again perfectly cast. I could kind of see Robert Duvall only because he's played that type of character in so many other movies. Like I can see him in that role, but not in the same way. I just he's just yeah. he's played that character before, but wouldn't be, it wouldn't wouldn't have been the same. So. Yeah, and it's just, it's so crazy to hear you you say all of those names because Powell is only supposed to be like in his late 20s, right? early 30s in the novel. Yeah. Uh, so the fact that they're considering all of these older <laughs> actors yeah. uh, to play it. But, I, you know, Reginald L. Johnson is just great. I mean, he's, <laughs> he kind of got stuck in this, you know, cop role. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, some people forget that he's he plays a cop in Ghostbusters. Yeah, yeah, he had a very small role he's, in that. Yeah, yeah, he's got a, he's got like one line. It's mm-hmm. when the the Ghostbusters are locked up, uh, and then of course he famously played Carl in uh, Family Matters. Exactly. So, but no, I think it's right. And there is, I know you said you didn't want to talk about the uh, the sequels all that much. No, go ahead. But but there is a rumor that because they are filming the newest Die Hard right now called McLean. Oh, I did not know that. Yes, they are currently filming the the next Die Hard movie called McLean, and there is rumor that Reginald Vell Johnson is returning. Oh, wow. Okay. As Al Powell. That makes sense. I mean, if you're gonna, I mean, that's, you're almost like rebooting, and you've got to, you've got to bring that nostalgia back. They've got to, yeah, we won't get too much into the, into the sequels, but it, it needs... That's one franchise that needs to get back to its roots because yeah. the last one was was the worst. Oh, yeah. So good, good day to die hard was not, not a good movie. No, it wasn't. So, uh, but yeah, what you mentioned about the the character of Powell in the book, I think I think Reginald Johnson said in the documentary 
that he was 31 or 32 when he got the role. So he was right in that age range of the character. So that probably helped him a lot as well. So, um, so Ellis uh, was portrayed by Hart Bachner, who was an acquaintance of Joel Silver. His role was actually shot in chronological order over three weeks. McTiernan had wanted the character to be suave like Cary Grant, but Bachner conceived of the character's motivations coming from cocaine use and insecurity, which I think he nailed that pretty good. McTiernan, oh, yeah. McTiernan actually hated the performance initially, but he noticed that Gordon and Silver were entertained by Bachner's sleazy antics, so he let him do it. So uh, that that's one of the first characters I remember in a movie that you like. This is gonna sound really bad, but it was like I couldn't wait for him to die. <laughs> you know, it was like <laughs> I, I, I hope they kill him early. You know, he was just so yeah. sleazy. But but yeah, that scene with the uh, that scene of him with with Hans is. Uh, it's classic. Yeah. Hans, uh, booby. And he's a, he's another actor who I can't say I've seen a lot of what yeah. he does, but I have, um, those of you who've listened to this podcast, and even my podcast know that I'm a huge Superman fan. Yes. Yes. And so he is actually the love interest of Supergirl mm. in the horrible 80s Supergirl movie. Really? Okay. Yeah. And that's one I've been meaning to go back and watch because I, I know I saw it, but it's been so long ago to see. So I'll, now that Nate, that intrigues me to watch it again, um, more, and watch it uh, more recently. So. so other notable scene stealers in the cast are also known from other 80s hit films and TV shows. Uh, I would quiz you on this, but I know you'd win, so it wouldn't be any fun, but maybe we'll do it anyway. So Paul Gleason as Police Chief Dwayne T. Robinson is also known from what John Hughes movie? Hey, you know, you mess with the bull, you're going to get the horns. <laughs> the Breakfast Club, exactly. So, uh, William Atherton as reporter Thorn- Thornburg is also known from what comedy? Well, we actually just talked about exactly. it. Exactly. He, he, he was in Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters. playing almost, almost the exact same exactly. character. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, which he said in the, he did an interview, he said he loves playing those type of characters, but it's like, well, you do it so well. Uh, World famous ballet dancer Alexander Gudnoff broke out as a revenge thirsty terrorist Carl also had supporting roles in which movie with Harrison Ford in 1985 witness. Yep. And he was also within a comedy with Tom Hanks and Shelley Long in 86. I didn't know that, but you said Tom Hanks and Shelley Long. So that's the money pit. Yeah. She was, uh, he was actually Shelley Long's, uh, was it ex-husband I think, or like he was the director of the, of the orchestra that she played in. But yeah. Uh, okay. and, and another, I think I saw that movie like once okay. years ago. Yeah, I've seen that one several times. Um, but one uh, one other correlating note between the two movies, Ode to Joy, which of course is the main theme of Die Hard, that's the song that he's directing at the very end of uh, The Money Pit. So as he's directing the orchestra, that's the song they're playing. So I always thought that was interesting when they did that together. So Limo driver Argyle was portrayed by Devereaux White, who would later join the cast of what ABC hit sitcom in its fifth season? You, Ooh, you, you may uh, not know this one. Yeah, I don't think I know that one. Okay, he was on Head of the Class. Okay. As a teacher, right. you should know this. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah that, I remember Head of the Class, but it, it's not yeah, one of those he would, nostalgia ones for me. Yeah, once again, I mean, he came in in the fifth season. It, it was it was uh, it was starting to fade by the time he got on there. So, 
And then uh, last but not least, one of the FBI, FBI agents named Johnson, which was actually an inside joke in regards to fellow cast member Reginald Vell Johnson, was played by Robert Davey, who was also in what 1985 Steven Spielberg produced film? Uh, he was in Goonies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you got you got all but one. That's really good. <laughs> yeah, he's Jake. I even know the character. It's yeah. Jake. He's Jake <laughs> in Goonies. Yeah. So, and one, the funny thing was, I was doing my notes. I forgot. I actually forgot he was in there because he. I mean, he's maybe what three or four minutes of screen time for the whole movie. I mean, it's, you yeah. know, there it's, it's a, a memorable character, but you know, uh, agent Johnson, agent Johnson, no relation. Yeah. Well, if that, you know, okay. There, that's another thing that bothers me <laughs> later is, is again, when they first do it, I'm kind of, okay, stupid joke. I get it. But then there's the point where Robert Davies, Agent Johnson, picks mm-hmm. up the phone and he goes, hey, it's Agent Johnson. And then he goes, no, no the, the other, other one. one. And I'm going, wait, what did the person say? <laughs> like, did they go, hey, what's up, man? You know, or. Right. And they also don't sound anything alike. So it's like, why would yeah. you think it's the. Yeah. So. But those are things like I know McTiernan said he added like there were certain little comic beats that he put in just to throw you off and make you kind of take you out of the normal action movie mode. And Johnson & Johnson, the agents, was that was one thing. The SWAT team and the guy being cut by the thorn on the rose bushes was another, mm-hmm. which I remember laughing as a kid. And then, of course, one of the most iconic scenes was when one of the terrorists is uh, standing over the snack bar and he starts eyeing the, the candy bars and he ends up taking one of the candy bars and eats it. So that was like my friends. We, we always yeah, had a, That was one of our favorite scenes, so... Okay, well, now, if you're going to talk about iconic 80s uh, actors, yes. you got to talk about that particular henchman. Do you know his name? Because that his name is Al Leon. There you go. There you go. His name is Al Leon. Mm-hmm. He was Genghis Khan in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Yes, he was. <laughs> you know, not only, I mean, he's in Big Trouble in Little China. Yep. He's in Lethal Weapon. Yeah. I mean... You want to talk about a name, uh, a face, exactly. you don't know his name. Right. <laughs> you want to talk about a face that as soon as you see him, you go, I've seen that guy yeah, in something. Exactly, exactly. You may not remember what, right? but you have seen him in something. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, I, you're, you're right. I failed to put him on the list, so I'm glad you I'm glad you brought him up. So, But I did not know his name, so when you said it, I was like, I, I have to agree with you because I can't prove you wrong because I don't know. So... Uh, uh, one interesting note, only a couple of the actors who played the German terrorists were actually German, and only a couple more could speak broken German. The actors were cast for their menacing appearances rather than their nationality. Nine of the twelve were over six feet tall. Uh, ironically, Bruce Willis, sneered at for being an all-American hero by the head German terrorist, is actually more German than most of the villains. Mm-hmm. Alan Rickman was English, and Gudenhoff was Russian. Bruce Willis was born in West Germany to an American father and a German mother. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I did know that, that Bruce was born in German Germany. Yeah. Um, but going off of that, because again, I, I love this movie. I know this movie. One <laughs> of the, one of the other terrorists, um, which you, you get a quick shot of him I'm trying to remember. I think he's like running down the stairs and he's kind of joking at one of the other terrorists. Okay. It's uh uh, uh, I used to know the actor's name. I can't think of the actor's name, but it's the guy who played Vigo in Ghostbusters 2. Oh, okay. 
Yes. The main villain in yes. Ghostbusters 2. Yes. I know who you're talking about. Yes. You're right, yeah. He and plays I, one of the yeah. random terrorists. Yeah, and I knew he looked familiar when I was watching him, and I couldn't place where I'd seen him before. And then, of course, the last henchman that's there at the end, uh, one of the last people that McLean shoots, uh, I remember as a kid thinking that was Huey Lewis, um, even though it's not, but he just, he kind of favored <laughs> Huey Lewis. <laughs> How about the one who replaces the desk clerk? Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right, well, let's jump into our favorite part, favorite or most iconic scenes. You have to you have to scale it down to at least maybe two or three. You can't tell uh, them all. The entire movie. <laughs> I'm going with the entire yeah. movie. I like that part where at the beginning when you see him on the plane and it goes all the way to yeah. the end when he gets in the limo with Holly at the end. Yeah, that's my favorite scene. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you can't pick one, just, just one out of uh, one that you uh, really want to talk about. It's like, again, it's like choosing between your favorite children. Right. Um, who's your favorite child? Oh, well, I only have one, so, so it's easy for me. <laughs> um, jeez. Uh, uh, you know, again, I think this, the, even though it's not much of a scene, mm-hmm. it's more of just a, a moment, you know, the crawling, the crawling in the, the vent mm-hmm. and then lighting the lighter, you know, right. okay, come on down to the coast. We'll get together. Have a few laughs. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's such an iconic, uh, shot. Right. Um, I probably, honestly, if I would say, if I'm going to have to go full scene, mm-hmm. I think it is the hybrid of new and from the book. It is the scene where, Hans tries to trick John mm-hmm. and then that leads into the having to run across the broken glass. Yeah. Yeah. And the, you know, uh, Hans screaming at, at, uh, Carl to shoot the glass and mm-hmm. he does it in German. Right. But then, you know, the famous, you know, shoot the glass. Right. And, right. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know. I, I, you know, you, you, you asked me that I'm thinking of that scene and then I'm, I'm even picturing when, um, when he ties uh, Carl up to the chain and just running him across <laughs> the room and slamming him against the wall, hanging him from the chain. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's a great thing. Of course, the jumping off the building mm-hmm. and uh, I mean, the whole would, movie. The yeah. whole movie's awesome. The thing about this one is there's so many different iconic scenes that. I mean, when I think about Die Hard, I can close my eyes, and there's certain scenes like him jumping off the building um, is, of course, iconic. And that was actually Bruce Willis jumping with an explosion behind him. That was real. That was a real effect they did. Um, not off the side of the building, but they did, yeah. Um, uh, of course, one of the most iconic scenes is Hans falling, the shot of Hans falling from the ledge, which. We can tell that story. We'll do that a little bit later. But I was about to say, yeah. you know that story. Yeah. Well, you go ahead and tell it. Go ahead. Uh, go ahead. 
So they had Alan Rickman rigged up to make the fall. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it was McTiernan or the stunt coordinator or who exactly it was pretty much said, okay, we're going to drop you on three. Mm -hmm. And then they ended up dropping him on one. Mm -hmm. And so the look on Alan Rickman's (laughs) face of sheer shock, terror, surprise is legit 100% real. Yeah. Because he was not ready to fall. <laughs> right. And he still fell like into an airbag and he was okay. And uh, yeah. and I loved it because they, they showed a little clip of him, like, I guess, talking about that scene at, like, some event much later. And uh, he said, uh, somebody said, were you, were you concerned for your life? He said, well, I will say they waited to shoot that as my very last scene. So whether <laughs> whether they were concerned for my safety. You'd be angry after yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but yeah, that 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 is an iconic scene. But I enjoy a lot of I enjoyed a lot of the scenes of uh, uh, of McLean and uh, Powell and uh, just their interaction back and forth. And then, of course, like you said, with uh, uh, Chief Dwayne, his com his uh, you know comedy uh, was great as well. Um, one of the scenes that I remember I just was iconic as a kid was the scene where. Uh, I can't remember what I can't remember what is it Dwayne says about keeping under advisement, which is when McLean decides he's going to take the C four out of the bag, put it on the on the office chair, put a computer monitor on top, duct tape it together, and throw it down the elevator shaft. Once again, even then, I was like, I don't understand why you're doing that. Besides, you're just angry. But he's like, what? Well, take this under advisement when he throws it down the the elevator shaft and it blows out all the windows. Um, it's just that that scene. Always makes me laugh, um, which is also from the book, right? Um, right. I was going to ask what, you what was was it, was was, the, was what, it explained a little bit better in the book of why he decided to yeah. do that? It was no, just pure it, anger. It, it was more to like, I think, get attention yeah. or distract uh, from what I can't remember. But I do remember because as soon as you said the computer monitor, uh-huh. uh, which you think is so, such a random thing in the book, he actually puts a typewriter on oh. top of it. <laughs> Yeah, well, computers weren't as common when they wrote the book, I'm sure. So, yeah. uh but yeah, and then I think there's some like I said talking about uh Chief Dwayne, some of his most iconic lines uh when Hans falls from the uh falls from the window. He says, yeah. "I hope I hope that wasn't one of the hostages." Yeah. And uh yeah, although I will say when you see like uh, you know I get you're not going to drop somebody out of a skyscraper. Right. I mean it's clearly a dummy. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Um but yeah, that and then uh when when they uh the SWAT team has turned on all the spotlights. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. They start firing and he's like shooting and the SWAT guy was like, "Oh, they can't see anything." And yeah, Powell's like shooting at the lights. lights. <laughs> And then they start shooting it, and all of a sudden he makes it like it's a realization yeah. to him. Like they're, they're, they're shooting, shooting at the lights. lights. Yeah. Like he figured it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it, pure, it is great. Pure incompetence, pure incompetence in leadership. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah. Um, but then I love when the FBI agents show up. Like he even he starts to realize how idiotic their ideas are. Right, right. The other one of my other favorite scenes, and this as a kid, I remember us. When we, I remember when we first saw this, when uh, they're about to break, they're trying to break in, and of course the the SWAT team gets pulled back, and the uh, I guess I guess the SWAT team leader goes, "Sit in the car, sit in yeah, the car,", in the car. and then gritty, yeah, his teeth. yeah, and then and then you see this little 
and a half tank, half car. And his kids were like, oh, man, it's about to be on now. They're, you know, they're going to come. They're going to break it all up. And then it just gets blown up by the uh, rocket launcher um, or whatever yeah. they had they used. And so uh, it was great. So those those are those are good scenes. <laughs> all right. So let's talk. We- that's that's another guy. Just just really quick. That's yeah, yeah. Uh, leader. I don't even know if his character has a name. I honestly don't. But that's another guy that you look at him and go, I've seen you in stuff. Yeah, yeah. I can't. I couldn't place I him. I can't. I can't tell you where. I, I can't place him. Yeah. But another guy I do like look at him and go. I've seen you in stuff. Yeah. Another guy like that is the guy that worked for the power company that was like in the the pot the the manhole, and uh, they were telling him to turn off the turn off the power, and he's like, I "Can do it down here. I can do it down." And he's he's been in like some he's been in a couple of McTiernan's other movies, and I want to say he was in Ghostbusters one or two as well. But um, he's done more like comedy kind of stuff. But um, when I saw yeah, well, him, that's the thing. The, the the SWAT guy that I'm talking about. The only thing that I even can actually pinpoint is he plays. Uh, he plays a, a small little character in Down Periscope. Oh wow! Kelsey okay. Grammer. Yeah, yeah, movie. yeah. Like that's about the only thing. But it, again, he's just one of those that you go. I've seen you in things. Yeah. You're you're one of those character actors. Yeah, exactly. And once again, he's not. I mean. You only see him for a few moments in the actual movies. He's not like a main character you would recognize him as easy. So, so oh, oh hold up! Oh, you guys I just realized. Like, who you're, I just remembered who you're talking about. Okay, yeah the the city worker. Yes, he, he's the neighbor in the Burbs. Yes, that's who he is. It's like I yeah. could see his face, but I couldn't think of. He, he's the goofy yeah. neighbor in the Burbs. Yeah, I, I mean, like I knew he'd been in some other com uh, other comedy movies, but I couldn't think what they were. So. But uh, but I recognized him immediately. So, all right. So here we go with a few uh, trivia's from about some of the other scenes that uh, I won't go into all these. You can read the ones we didn't get to in the show notes. But see how many of these. I'm sure Laramie knows about these already. So, uh, but the scene where McLean falls down the elevator shaft was a mistake by the stuntman who was supposed to grab the first vent as it was originally planned. He slipped and continued to fall, but the shot was used anyway. It was edited together with one where McLean grabs the next vent down as he falls. And that's another scene I remember as a kid seeing the first time. Like, you could hear everybody gasp when he missed it. Because in every other action movie, you knew he was going to reach for it. He was going to make it. So for him to miss it was like, oh my gosh, how did he miss it? So uh, that's great. And that's also one that, uh, if I'm remembering this right... uh they're lucky he grabbed the one he grabbed so they could use that shot because, of course, it wasn't a real shaft. Yeah. Like, he would have just hit the the fake, you know, mm-hmm. ground that was made to look like the shaft kept yeah, going. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I think, well, I don't know. I guess it depends on which, sto- which version of the story you've heard because I think one that I saw, he actually fell to whatever was at the bottom and they went back and did the shot from inside where it, show- where it showed him catching the fingers catching okay, the yeah. next one that so, might be what i'm remembering yeah. yeah so i just knew there was something about that they they had to cut the shot right because he uh, something about hitting the bottom yeah. oh yeah yeah i'm sure they had to edit it enough where you didn't yeah i got i get what you're saying so uh this was interesting which this is this could be just more fan theory than anything else but when ellis meets gruber carl can be seen pouring ellis a glass of coca-cola this is most likely because Ellis, who had been snorting cocaine throughout the film, asked them if he if they had any coke, 
which they mistook him as mentioning soda. So, <laughs> once again, I don't think that's true, but it's possible. Fan yeah. theory. Um, I do love that John, like, immediately upon meeting Ellis, you know, he was like, you missed something. Yeah. Like, he, he, yeah. Exactly. Well, when it was obvious, I mean, it was still plenty of white powder on the on the desk that he does not subtly try to wipe off. I was just making a phone call. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, so I thought this was interesting. While making this film, cinematographer uh, Jan de Bont, I got to say his name, got trapped in one of the lifts. This later gave an inspiration for the opening scene of Speed, which he directed in 1994. So, uh, and then, you know, we talked about the poster earlier. Um, Bruce Willis was mainly known for playing a comedic role, as we mentioned before. So when the first trailers for Die Hard appeared in cinemas, audiences actually laughed at him thinking it must be a comedy. This uh, made the studio nervous, so for a brief time, Willis's face was removed from the posters to prevent expectations of it being a comedy, hence the use of the Nakatomi building for the poster. Once the film came out and received a positive response, Willis's face was added back onto the poster. So... Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. All right, let's talk about box office and critical response, and then we'll go ahead and wrap this thing up. So Die Hard's premiere actually took place on July 12th, 1988, at the Avco Theater in Los Angeles. In North America, the film received a limited release in 21 theaters on July 15th, 1988, earning just over $601,000, an average of about $28,000 per theater. It was considered a successful debut with a high per-theater average gross. The Los Angeles Times said the late change in advertising focus and diminishing popularity for action films should have worked against Die Hard. Instead, positive reviews and the limited release made it a must-see film. It received a wide release the following week on July 22, 1988, across 1,276 theaters. The film earned $7.1 million, uh, that weekend, the film finished as the number three film of the weekend behind Coming to America in its fourth week of release and Who Framed Roger Rabbit in its fifth uh, week of release. The film fell to number four in its third week. Um, in the fourth weekend, it rebounded to the number three position. While the film never claimed the number one box office ranking, it spent ten straight weeks among the top five highest grossing films. In total, the film earned an approximate box office gross between 81 and $83 million. This made it the seventh highest grossing film of 1988 behind Crocodile Dundee 2, Twins, which Schwarzenegger did instead of this, the fantasy comedy Big with Tom Hanks, Coming to America, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and the comedy drama Rain Man with Tom Cruise. So, uh, it did good. That's why it had so many sequels. So currently on Rotten Tomatoes, it's at a 94% on the tomato meter, and I've never seen this before. It also has a 94% audience score, so it's exactly the same on both the critic and the audience, which I've, it's, which is pretty rare. And on IMDb, it's an 8.2 out of 10 with a 72% on the Metacritic score. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty low. That's, that's pretty low. low. So I, I definitely will keep it in the uh, Rotten Tomatoes. 90s, yeah. Yeah. So I thought this was interesting. Robert Ebert was one of the few critics to give this a negative review. The main reason he did was because he hated the character of Chief Dwayne T. Robinson. He said the character was unnecessary, useless, dumb, 
and he prevented the movie from working. He did like the sequels and later changed his opinion. So. Well, he liked the sequels that he saw. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. He liked Die Hard 2 and Die Hard with a Vengeance. But. Yeah. Well, right there, we're talking about the sequel. So, yeah, Die Hard 2, Die Harder came out in 1990. Die Hard. Yeah, that's the thing. We don't, we don't ever get to talk about any of the sequels. Yeah. Die Hard with a Vengeance was 95, uh, which I. Die Hard 2, I enjoyed a lot. I really liked Die Hard with a Vengeance. Uh, Live Free yeah. or Die Hard in 2007. I'm one of the few people that actually enjoyed that one. I didn't think it was as bad as a lot of people thought it was. Uh, well, but, there's the, there's the whole destroying a helicopter with a car. Oh yeah, I mean it's um, yeah launching a car into the air to destroy a helicopter. Jumping a 18 wheeler or I mean, uh, it was like a was it a dump truck he's driving on a broken uh, overpass? I think he jumps. Anyway, so yeah, it's you got to suspend uh, suspend a lot of uh, belief in that one. So. But as we both mentioned, A Good Day to Die Hard, which came out in 2013, uh, was the most undie hard die hard movie uh, I've seen. So, Which is ironic because it is the only die hard movie that has been released. I'm pretty sure McLean is going to also be this. Mm-hmm. But Good Day to Die Hard is the only die hard movie that was written to be a die hard movie. Really? And it doesn't feel that way. <laughs> yeah. Because, as we've talked about, the first Die Hard movie is based on a book. Right. Uh, Nothing Lasts Forever. Um, the second Die Hard movie is actually based on a book called 88 Minutes. Yeah, I think I that's I've right. I've read it, too. Uh, I think it's called 88 Minutes. Um, the third Die Hard movie and the fourth Die Hard movie were actually uh, reworks of scripts that were floating around in Hollywood. Okay. The... Die Hard with a Vengeance was a, a script that was originally called uh, Simon Says. Uh, makes sense, yeah. And they adapted it to make it a Die Hard movie. And then Live Free or Die Hard was a script that I think was called Terror 4.0. Okay. Which was, again, what it, it is mm-hmm. about a, um, you know, a cyber terrorist. Right. Uh, and then they adapted it to be a Die Hard movie. So it wasn't until A Good Day to Die Hard that that was the first one that was written mm-hmm. to be a Die Hard movie. Yeah. Now, I will say, um, as far as Live Free or Die Hard, the one thing I didn't, the one thing that bothered me about that one was because it was rated PG-13. And not that I'm, you know, a big into like, it must be rated R. But when you've, John McClane has a certain dialogue, <laughs> let's just say it that yeah. way. So to try to clean him up for that movie felt just it took him. It took him out of the character. So they did. They did have an unrated, which you know, which I, they've done. They've done for a lot of movies. Well, they'll do certain scenes where they'll do an R scene and they'll do a PG thirteen scene, depending on where the studio goes. So I actually enjoyed the unrated version better because it was more in line with his character based on the language. So, uh, and I think I think with that one, I only I've only watched the unrated version. Yeah. Uh, except for when I originally saw it, because I did. See, I can tell you that. The, that live free or die hard and good day to die hard. I did see those in theaters. Right. Um, just, just to let people know who listen to it, I do see <laughs> movies in theaters. He does go to the theater. It's, yeah, it's just that when we're talking about 80s movies, I mean, I was in elementary school right. throughout the 80s. Yeah. So he's a little younger than I am, just a little. So. Yeah. All right. And just, I'm going to briefly mention these and then we're going to totally wrap this up. But 
other movies that were inspired by Die Hard because once again, once you make a movie that's successful, and as we said, as a perfect movie as this, of course it's going to be copied by every other, you know, copied over and over again. Uh, I'm curious. Die Hard, sorry, Leslie Nelson. Was that? Yeah. Spy Hard, yeah, yeah, yeah. That wasn't on my list. I should have put that on there. But I, I'm <laughs> curious of how many of these you've seen. So let's let's we'll start from the beginning. So this came in '88, 1991. Toy Soldiers with uh, Will Wheaton and uh, uh, Sean Astin. Yes, seen that? Yes, I saw that one. Under Siege with uh, of course, yeah, Steven Seagal. Steven Seagal. Yeah, I, or as they started calling these movies, like Under Siege. Die, die Hard in a Submarine. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And Under then, Siege 2, Die Hard on a Train. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, I don't mention any of the sequels. Yeah. Die Hard on a Bus. Exactly. Uh, here's, an, yeah. here's Die Hard on a Plane, Passenger 57 in 1992 hey, with Wesley nice. Snipes. Uh, one of my other favorites, Cliffhanger in 1983, Die Hard on a Mountain with uh, Sylvester Stallone. Die Hard on a Bus, Speed in 1994. Wait, wasn't Cliffhanger was another McTiernan movie, wasn't it? Uh, I believe so, yeah. No, 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 it wasn't. That was uh, Harlan, the one that did Die Hard 2. Rennie Harlan. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, Rennie Harlan did Cliffhanger. I knew, I knew there was a Die Hard connection. Yeah, yeah. Rennie Harlan did Die Hard 2, and he did Cliffhanger as well. So uh, Then uh, was a Die Hard and a Hockey Ring, Sudden Death with Jean-Claude Van Damme in 95. There you go. Uh, the Rock in 1996 with uh, the late Sir uh, Sean Connery. Sean Connery. Uh, and then you had Die the Hard yeah. Then you had the back to back in 1997 executive decision with Kurt Russell and Air Force One with Harrison Ford. Yeah. And then in tw- back to Die Hard on the plane. Yep, 2013 Die Hard at the White House. We had White House Down with uh, Jamie Fox and Olympus Has Fallen with uh, Gerard Butler. Which Olympus Has Fallen was much better than White House Down. And then of course yeah. I mentioned in 2018 Wait, Skyscraper. I mean, that one's pretty much turned into a modern day uh, Die Hard oh, franchise. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, they'll have the fall. What we call it, the Fallen movies. So you had Olympus. Olympus yeah. has fallen. Angel has fallen. Uh, London has fallen. And then they're doing. They're already working on a fourth one now. Uh, but I can't remember. Yeah, the I can't remember the title. I can't remember yeah. what it is. But uh, I. But I will say, my wife and I went and saw Olympus has fallen when it came out. And when I left, I said that was the best Die Hard sequel they never made. So. Yeah. I think that was the closest to what made Die Hard a good one. So, but that's it. I'm sure we could talk about this for another hour or two, but we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna hit end at this point. So, but uh, any final thoughts on the greatness of Die Hard? This is one of the greatest movies. Uh, whether you you want to make the argument about it being a Christmas movie or not, this movie should be watched year round. Uh, it is a summer blockbuster. It was released in July right. along with the sequels. Yeah. Uh, but it got the Christmas feel. It makes everybody happy to watch it. Yeah. Uh, which is what Christmas is all about. Yeah. And, uh, one of, and one of my favorite lines mentions Christmas when, uh, and I keep forgetting his name, the techie guy played by uh, Theo. Theo, yeah, who became um, Chuck Norris's sidekick on uh, Walker, Texas Ranger. Um, when he says, I hope you got that miracle lined up. And he said, oh, Theo, it's Christmas. It's the time of miracles. So it's one of my favorite lines. I used to say that all the time around this time of year. So, All right. Well, thanks again, Laramie, for being a part. Let everybody know about your podcast, Moving Panels. 
Uh, yeah, so uh, if you, you haven't listened yet, I got a uh, podcast called Moving Panels where we discuss movies and television shows that are based on, inspired by, or adapted from the world of comic books. Uh, in fact, uh, today when this episode is dropped, mm-hmm. I have a new episode as well uh, where we discuss, me and uh, my guest host Reese will actually discuss Iron Man, the movie that kicked off the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. Very cool, which I just recently rewatched that. I'm rewatching all of the MCU movies uh, here during the holidays. For whatever reason, I guess I just missed because we haven't had one since uh, Spider-Man uh, Far From Home. So uh, I'm going back and watching it. But I really enjoyed the uh, Dark Knight trilogy you guys did a few weeks ago. So that's that's a good one. If you haven't, if you, if you want to get into a good deep dive, that's a good episode. It's a, one of the longer episodes, but... That's a good yep. one. Almost a two-hour episode. <laughs> so we're not going to make this one two-hour episodes. We're going to wrap it up. So thanks again for listening. Thanks, Larry, for being a part. And we'll see you guys next time. Yippee-ki-yay. <laughs>